The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 107 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. We've got another great episode for you this week. Really quickly, I do want to thank our reviewers on Apple Podcasts this week. We had a new five-star review from user Opley Davey. I think I can guess who that is. Uh, If it's who I'm thinking of, thank you. You're still one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, I really appreciate that review. And on uh, Facebook, we have a new five-star review from a Debbie one less. Debbie, thank you so much. I hope I'm saying your last name right. Your words were just wonderful. Thank you to everybody who leaves us these reviews, which truly helps us to be found by other people who are searching for great content. Okay, this week in the conversation, my guest, Isaac Calvert. Isaac's family have been friends of mine for many, many years. They are some of my favorite people in the world. I grew up with Isaac's parents. And actually, before our conversation, the last time I had seen Isaac, we figured out he was about five years old. So (laughs) he has sure accomplished a lot. He is a renowned expert in Israel. Plus, he's a true scholar. And, you know, we've joked around on the show before about how uncomfortable I get uh, interviewing scholars. Normally, I'm much more comfortable with the comedians and uh, just kind of joking around with people. But Isaac is so approachable and just so cool. And it is a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. And you're going to love it too. And this week in my latter day life, uh, pertaining to Isaac's family, I'll tell you a story about a bandana and acceptance. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here in the Latter-day Live studios, my special guest is a scholar and an expert on all things Israel, and I'm so fascinated to hear his story. Isaac Calvert, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So I will go into a quick, quick history of Isaac. Isaac's family has been friends of mine for a long, long time. Isaac's parents hold a very special place in my heart, two of the best people I know. I, I grew up with Isaac's father is my young men's president, and uh, knowing your mom very well, you come from an awesome family. Let's use that as a jumping off point. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Well, uh, born and raised in San Jose. I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, Thanks for saying all those good things about my parents. Uh, I think they're pretty (laughs) great, too. Um, They are great people. Yeah. My dad is a dentist, and his three brothers and his dad and his grandpa are all dentists too. Yeah. So kind of grew up in that dentist tradition. Um, although none of like none of me or my siblings have been dentists at all. So maybe it kind of died with us. My oldest sister, Jamie, um, her husband is a dentist. So ah. kind of, you know, taking up the, the torch there. Gotcha. Awesome. But yeah. So what um, were you into growing up? Growing up, uh, I probably watched too much TV when I was little, but uh, <laughs> I remember um, when I was in fifth grade, my parents sent me to science camp 
maybe trying to get me into science and maybe dentistry eventually. And I remember coming home, my parents were like, so how was it? And I said, there was this guy who played guitar there and I got to play guitar now. And it was like, you sent you to science science camp camp guitar. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so they were a little bit surprised. um, And I begged for a guitar that whole year for Christmas. I got a guitar and that kind of started my whole journey as a teenager in middle school and high school. Music was my life. I did nothing but, and I was a music major. I actually graduated with my bachelor's in, in music. Were you into, so you're a, you're a true scholar. I'm just, before we get into your whole story of how it all happened uh, let's see, you have a bachelor's degree in music, you have a PhD in instructional psychology and technology from BYU, and then you have a doctorate of philosophy and education from Oxford. That's an amazing pedigree, Isaac. Like, were you always this incredible student? No. Really? No. In fact, I I remember, you know, speaking of growing up and watching too much TV, I would come home from school and me and my older brother, Andy, would watch TV while doing homework. My mom was always, guys, you cannot watch TV and do homework. You can't do it. It's like, well, if we get A's, like, will you let us? And she's like, no, we can't do this. <laughs> so she actually came with a rule that we weren't allowed to watch television unless we were knitting. Because she wanted to discourage us. She thought, okay, well, boys don't want to <laughs> knit. So obviously, if I make this rule, we're not going to have the boys watch TV anymore. And uh, we, we knitted so many scarves. So you just started knitting. We just started knitting. My yeah. brother and I, to this day, we know how to knit. You so, and Andy are knitting. That's so <clears throat> Yeah, kind of weird. But yeah, so I guess no, definitely not always You were not a big student. time student. No. But so you fall in love with music. Did you see yourself having a career in music? I did. You know, all of, all of high school, all I wanted to do was be a choir conductor. That's all I wanted. Mm. And when I went to BYU, that was the idea. I majored in, in jazz piano, of all things, and wow. just really wanted to, to go into music. And I was in all the choirs. Um, so you're a vocalist as well as instruments. Sure, yeah. I mean, just, you know, piano and I guess the guitar, you know, a little bit from yeah. when I was, you know, in fifth grade. But... Uh, yeah, I just loved loved All forms it. Of music. Yeah, and I came back from my mission. Where did you serve your mission? The Dominican Republic. Awesome. And uh, for whatever reason, as a piano major, you're practicing, you know, thirty plus hours a week. Yeah. And I just it just didn't feel like the right direction anymore. Mm. And it was way confusing because going back to you know, growing up, it was like. Your choice as a Calvert male is dentistry or something you feel passionate about. Those are your two, <laughs> you know, paths. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it was like this thing that I felt passionate about just didn't feel right anymore. Wow. And so I considered going into pre-dental for a while, but then I went to the Jerusalem Center and that's kind of when things really changed. So this is kind of why we have you on the show and one of the things you're most well known for uh, you are, for point of reference, 32 years old. I can't point out the age of all my guests, but I think if you're under 40, it's good to point out the age because it's so impressive, all the things that you've achieved. So 32 years old, uh, how old were you the first time you went to Jerusalem Center? I was 22. So tell us a little bit about what the Jerusalem Center is. I've never been, I've been very blessed in my life to have traveled most of the world. However, I've never been to Israel which is so high on the bucket list for me. Um, so I know nothing, almost nothing about it. But I've heard a lot about uh, the Jerusalem Center. That's an impressive place. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so the Jerusalem Center operates 
through BYU. It's mostly for BYU students. Uh, they take about 70 students every semester. So fall, winter, and then the spring, summers combined. And you take a really intensive course while you're there. It's not like a vacation-y type study abroad. You have a course in New Testament and Old Testament. They're both mm. taught by BYU professors in religion department. Then you have an ancient Near Eastern history class taught by somebody from either religion or history at BYU. And then you have a professor that focuses on the history of Israel and Judaism, the religion. And that's a local. Um, His name is Ophir Yarden. He's an Orthodox Jew, and he teaches that course. Then there's a Muslim professor, local Palestinian guy, who teaches the history of Palestine and Islam. Wow. So that's wait, not yet. We're still we still have more. Then you have to either pick Hebrew or Arabic to take kind of an introductory get your feet wet course in the language. And then there's a field trip class. You're going on maybe one or two field trips every week. Mm. And those include, you know, just excursions into the old city which is just right outside the door to longer ones like you'll go to Jordan for four days. You'll go sometimes to Egypt, sometimes to Greece, sometimes to Turkey, depending on the semester. And then you'll do it at the end, a two-week excursion to the Galilee. Uh, and that's that's the semester. So it's pretty jam-packed. That is amazing. What uh, what language did you study while you were there? I did Hebrew. You did Hebrew. Yeah. How was your Hebrew? It's okay. It's yeah. good. Yeah. You're fairly proficient in Hebrew. Yeah, so I, I kept studying when I came back from the Jerusalem Center and took just about every class I could at BYU. And then that is so impressive. It's it, You know, people get freaked out by the, the alphabet being different. Yeah. But to be honest, the grammar is kind of, you know, like Spanish for my mission. It's kind of, it's not any more difficult or than that. It's just, you got to get over that alphabet thing at first. So this lit a fire in you. If uh, Is it... Is it hard? Like, is there a long list of people I would imagine to get into the Jerusalem Center? Normally there are. Yeah. yeah, there there are a lot of people that apply. The weird thing is, you know, in the context of the story of me coming back from my mission and not knowing what to do, Yeah, I just prayed my guts out for months. What do I do now? Do I go to dentistry? Do I stay with music? What do I do? And I remember one morning I was home for Christmas. My dad said, hey, how about the Jerusalem Center? You thought about that before? Hmm. And I said, oh, cool. And I went on, on the internet and the deadline was the day before he mentioned that. So it's like, oh, shoot, you know. Oh, too late. Typical, right? Yeah. Anyway, about four months later, I'm praying some more, one morning, just typical. And I have this little feeling like, maybe think about Jerusalem again. Hmm. Walking to school, I see a poster and it says, we need four men to fill spots for the Jerusalem Center program this summer, which was in a month. Wow. And it was like, I think, I think I should do this. And 24 hours later, I was going. That is amazing, Isaac. It was crazy. Yeah. Really fast. So the Jerusalem Center is basically a part of BYU. It's run by BYU. Yeah. Um, Do you actually stay on site or how does that work? So you stay on site. So they have... I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of it, but it's... I've seen a kind of a domed building, is that right? Yeah, so it's on a hill east of the old city called Mount Scopus, and it kind of has, I think, 12 floors, and it goes down in steps down the hill. It's actually really Mm. cool. And the bottom, like, eight floors are all student apartments. And everybody, you share a room with four people, and everybody has a balcony that you look out, and you see directly 
the best view in the city of the Dome of the Rock and the whole thing. So um, wow. you're right there on site and they have, you know, meals are served in a little cafeteria. All your classes are there. Everything's there. So so what was if, all right, so I'm going to do a little spoiler alert, I guess, for, for the rest of the conversation. Again, we mentioned you're 32 years old. This has led to a passion and love for Israel. You've now been there more than 20 times. Is that right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is amazing. So you are truly an expert on on Israel. I mean, that's incredible. When you look back at that first trip, were there were there one or two things that really stood out to you, whether it was mentally or spiritually, or were there were there was there an experience that really drove this love for Israel? Yeah, I think for me, growing up. I had thought, based on kind of basic exposure to religion in Sunday school and things like that, that there were basically the Catholics and the Protestants, and that's it. Like, in terms of Christianity, the end, you know? Sure. Um, And when I went to Jerusalem, I kind of suddenly realized at 22, my goodness, there are so many denominations of Christianity in the Mm. world. And you go to this place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where most of the world's Christians think that this is where the crucifixion, the resurrection happened. Um, and I started to get exposed to Syriac Orthodox Christians and Ethiopian Orthodox and Coptics and Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all, all these, there's so many different kinds. And I was just impressed by a lot of the, the ways in which our worship was similar. And I just never considered that. I think I had spent so much time getting a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel that maybe I'd kind of ignored the little gems of truth that other faith traditions have too. And it was really fun to just share. And, you know, being in a place where it wasn't like I was worried about, oh my gosh, like when you encounter truths in other places, oh, my testimony, ah, no, no. It was like, I have a testimony, it is strong, and these like sharing these truths with people actually makes my testimony stronger, more alive, which is really fun. I'd have to imagine that that type of experience, there, there seems to be a big focus in the church on bring what you have. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that bring what you have to us and we'll share what we have together. I can hear that in you. There may be a few fewer opportunities in Utah County right now. Uh, right. I'm not surrounded by as many different faiths, but when I go out and travel, I, I certainly see that. I can see this sparking this love. As, I, as we mentioned before, you have a doctorate of philosophy and education, philosophy and religions. So you've spent a lot of your life studying religion, just generally. Absolutely. Yeah. What an interesting perspective from Israel. So you come back from uh, the Jerusalem Center. You you do this amazing uh, amazing time there. How did that shape what you were what you ended up doing next? Well, for the first time in my life, I thought I could be passionate about something other than music, which was a, a big shock to me. That didn't ha- hadn't occurred to me before. So I started to explore the things. I ended up deciding to finish out the music degree, um, but I really wanted to focus on education, on teaching. I was really passionate about that. And so I did the instructional psychology PhD at BYU. Um, so what, what is the instructional psychology 
Um, it's a little program. bit it's a little bit different now than it was. I think now it's more focused on instructional design of technology for teaching, like websites and things like that. Um, for, for teaching psychology. No, for teaching psychology, uh, but just just for teaching. So oh, I guess it's not like teaching. counseling okay. psychology or anything. It's gotcha. like the psychology, the psychology of how of, teaching okay. works. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So it's the psychology of education. Yeah. yeah Sometimes yeah. when I say, oh, instructional psychology, like, oh, so are you a counselor? You know? Yeah. No. When, well, that's what I went to. That, right. That you, teaching psychology was really the psychology of instruction. Exactly. Okay. So like theories of how learning gotcha. works. And oddly enough, when I was there, I kind of got really passionate about the teaching aspect and not so much about the technology. And I wanted to understand how teaching worked. And so I sought out a a dissertation topic that would focus on the human dimensions of teaching more than the technological kind of accoutrements surrounding it. So I I had a friend who I had met at the Jerusalem Center. He was uh, one of the senior missionary couples, and he is a violin maker. So for my dissertation, I did an ethnography, just a a prolonged in-depth study where I apprenticed under him Mm. in the afternoon. So I took classes in the morning, and then the afternoons I would go learn how to make violins with this guy, and then I would record all of our sessions and read his journals from when he was an apprentice, keep my own journals, and talk about how does this apprentice-master relationship work. And that was kind of, that was my first dissertation. Gosh, that is amazing. Isaac, you've had some really cool experiences. I mean, really, this is impressive. Um, what sparked uh, the desire to go to Oxford? Well, that that was a whole other story. So I, I was finishing up my, my PhD at BYU, um, just writing writing the, the dissertation in its final format. And uh, I was worried about what to do next, because if you get both degrees from the same place... It's kind of like marrying your cousin. Like the, academics don't <laughs> like that. It's like you that you need more experience in just one institution. Yeah, and I I would guess that BYU maybe more so because it's a faith based. Oh, you're a member of that church, and you only have the experience at that church's school. Is there more of that? A little bit, yeah, I, yeah. I think so. I mean, if it was like if you got all your degrees from Harvard, it might not be quite as bad for you. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, but but versus something like Notre Dame or BYU or where it's. Very church centric, yeah. Exactly. So I started to search out different options. Could I do a master's degree kind of backwards? Could I go do a master's degree after my PhD? I didn't know. Maybe do a postdoc. I ended up finding Oxford uh, through a series of very kind of personal spiritual moments. I actually went to the Education in Zion mm. Museum on campus at BYU with a teacher. I just pulled out my journal, just started kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. And after all this study and looking at different places, I just thought, I had this thought come to my mind. And I wrote it down. I still have the journal entry. Uh, and it said, you need to go to Oxford mm. and you need to study how different cultures treat teaching and learning as a sacred activity. And that's what you my should do. Gosh. Isaac, I am such a simpleton that hearing that, like I can't imagine those thoughts. I get thoughts like, Hey, you should probably watch less football or, you know, I mean, you should, (laughs) Hey, you should probably mow the lawn today to get that heavy of a thought. Isaac is beautiful. Well, I mean, and I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to say like, this is typical. This is 
way weird for me. I'm, I'm not always kind of getting these grandiose revelations. See, I believe you are. I think every morning you wake up and get some <laughs> grand vision. Today, I'm going to change the world this way. No, man, wouldn't that be great? But it was it was a very... I mean, I had been thinking about that question. Yeah. And I'd been thinking about Oxford. So it wasn't totally out of the blue. Right. But it was just this, okay, you need to do this. And I, through a series of miracles, was able to get BYU to pay for me to go to England because I was going to present at a conference. Mm. And I met the professor. Actually, that night, when I got that that prompting, I emailed a professor at Oxford <laughs> who eventually became my supervisor. And all I said was, Dear Dr. Guerin, I want to study how different cultures treat you know, can you help me? And he said, I love that topic. I want to help you get in. Wow. And he answered the next day, which when I was his student, he didn't answer emails that fast. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, there was serious divine intervention going on here. I love it, Isaac. That's so awesome. And so when I got there, the topic was too big. And in narrowing it down more and more, it was like, oh, you have experience in Jerusalem. Oh, you have Hebrew experience. Why don't you go study how the Jewish people in Jerusalem treat teaching as a sacred act? And so then... For my research, I wrote up that proposal for about a year and a half. Then once I defended it, I lived in Jerusalem for most of 2016 and studied in Orthodox Jewish learning environments. They're called yeshivas, like the religious schools. And uh, enrolled as a student, interviewed, read all their scriptures. I mean, all, but lots. And just kind of immersed myself and tried to find the answers to these questions and... That was my thesis at Oxford, was a book on on that. I'm trying to imagine something more niche. I mean, that is a beautiful niche within a niche within a niche. Oh, yeah. So here's a question, because now you've studied the importance of, in in Orthodox Judaism, especially in Israel, what teaching and, and learning and everything means. Has this affected how you see teaching within the church? Absolutely. Yeah, in Absolutely. what ways? Can I ask that? Sure. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, so the classes I teach at BYU are on the history and philosophy of education. And I started teaching them a little bit like, maybe like a world religion class, except we focus on the scriptures of specific world religions and civilizations around the world and what they say about the sanctity of teaching and learning, mm. how they, what methods do their scriptures prescribe as holy methods of doing this. And uh, I think for me, it's beautiful to see when a principle of truth from the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is repeated and echoed mm. for, throughout civilization. And you can find it. It's like, and we do this a lot in our class. It's like, see this scripture from, Zoroastrianism, and you see this scripture from the Hindu Veda, and you see this scripture from Confucian, blah, blah, blah. Let's go to Doctrine and Covenants 73. And it's like, oh my gosh. Like, really? this is this is like the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Um, one, of the, one of the examples that we talk about a lot, we do a whole week on, is light as a symbol of learning. And Doctrine and Covenants, I think it's 93, I want to say, has a whole chapter on a whole section just on light mm. and how the light that enlightens our understanding 
is the same light that proceeds from the presence of God in the center of the universe. And it's in the light of the moon, the light of the stars, the light of the sun. And you can almost like if you had like a, a transparency, you could put the scripture from Buddhism and from Hinduism and from Jainism and all these different religions almost on top of it and just say, wow, this is really similar. Um, that the symbol of the light of God in you growing brighter and brighter until the perfect day, oh, this thing awesome. is happening all over, you know? And uh, it's really cool. And I love when students can see this and no longer are they afraid of what they might find out if they study other religions too hard, but it's almost like, oh my gosh, this is actually enriching and reaffirming my faith and my testimony of the atonement of Christ and the, the restored gospel, you know? That is just cool. I think right now we're at a time in the world where unfortunately we tend to focus on differences. And yeah. I see that in politics. I see it in faith. I see it in sporting. I mean, I see it in almost everything is the, aha, here's where you're wrong. I know a lot of our detractors focus on the Book of Mormon. They, it's like completely let's ignore the fact that you're Christians, you're wrong, and here's why. What is the strength of focusing? And, and, and by the way, it's easy for me to call out and say other people are detractors to us. We equally are detractors of other faiths that way. We can be very quick to diminish, oh, you know, you guys believe this and it's wrong, or sometimes you don't believe anything. Here's what why that makes you a bad person. Mm. Focusing on commonalities, where is the strength in that? Why should why should we as a faith focus on our commonalities with other faiths? You know, I I think for me the I guess or should we is the question. I mean, really, is it is there strength in, in focusing on maybe it's not focusing. Is there strength in focusing on our combined faiths to establish some common ground before we start talking about differences? Of course. Yeah. Uh, Truman Madsen uh, had a, a friend who was, I think an, an Anglican minister. Uh, and he talked about the concept when they would have ecumenical councils or councils among mm. many Christians. He said there were two rules when we would talk together. First rule was you cannot compare the best of your faith with the worst of another's faith. And the second rule was, you need to lead with holy envy. And he said, let me give you an example, this Anglican. He said, I love the doctrine of vicarious work for the dead. I wish I could do something for my ancestors who did not have this faith. He mm. says, I have holy envy for the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who can do something for their ancestors in that way. I don't agree with it. But I, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. You know? And for me, when I grew up thinking, and I think it's First Nephi 17 where it talks about how there are saved two churches only, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil, right? And I grew up thinking, well, obviously, this is the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints and everyone else is the Church of the Devil. But President Oaks, pretty recently, in the last two or three years, clarified the scripture. And he said, the Church of the Lamb of God is anyone trying to do good in this world. Yeah. And the church of the devil is everybody who's trying to do bad stuff. Yeah. So it's not like we have this kind of exclusive, you know, access to goodness. And so for me, that shifted a lot of things where it's like, if we believe in goodness, let's 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 see it in each other and, and team up. 
and yeah. accomplish good, you know? <laughs> so I think that's something that when, it, when I take people to Jerusalem, for example, a lot of people begin the tour or their time there looking at other faith churches and going, oh my goodness, look how blank, blank, blank this is. This yeah. is so formulaic, or this is so faithless, or this is so rote. Like, how could they just read prayers that they have written down mm. for them? Or why are they touching this rock, you know? And then it's like, if you take a moment to say, well, let's just put ourselves in their shoes for a second. Yeah. Imagine if there were no temple, and the only place you could go to do ordinances were was a temple, and there hadn't been one for 2,000 years. What would you do? Maybe you'd go to the last place there used to be a temple and pray that there there would be one again. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like having having that capacity to see through the eyes of another is, is so pretty powerful, cool. Isaac. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Israel in a second, but first, you know, you go through this experience of you grow up in California, then you spend a few years in South America, obviously. You go to church in, in the ward that I grew up in, then you're going to church in, in the Dominican Republic, which is very different from San Jose. Right. Then you're going to church in a student ward in Provo, which is very different from both. Suddenly you're in Oxford in the UK, which is where I have spent a ton of time, not Oxford specifically, but in the UK, I've spent a lot of time. I've been to church in London many times, completely different experience. And then you're spending time in Israel Talk about the difference in, I, I think that we, we have a tendency to look at our faith, I do, I shouldn't say we, I have a tendency to look at our faith through the lens of wherever I am at the time. And then I get outside myself and I go to church in Tokyo or I go to church somewhere else and I go, oh, that's right, we are a global religion. And it's not the same as it is in Linden, Utah. Talk a little bit about what you've seen and, and how you see us as a global church. Hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that the well I'll, I'll tell you one thing about the contrast between Oxford and the Dominican Republic yeah um, the Dominican Republic is definitely a developing country most of my mission I didn't have electricity we're taking we're talking bucket showers and you know making sure you don't drink the water kind of yeah. a thing um, the UK and the United States very developed first world countries right um, it troubled me when I read the scripture about how whatever principle of intelligence you attain unto in this life will rise with you in the resurrection and so much greater will, you, will be your advantage in the world to come. And I thought, well, does that, could that mean that the people who are educated at Oxford have an advantage over the people in the Dominican Republic mm. and having known them so personally and spent so much time with them, that didn't make sense. And this as I, unfair. and I see, as I studied it, yeah, as I studied it more and prayed about it, I feel like, I was making a false assumption. Mm. I think the scripture says principles of intelligence you attain unto through your diligence and obedience, mm. not things you learn by study. Right. And to me, it's like thinking of examples of these principles of intelligence or light and truth are like faith, kindness, love, diligence. Yeah. And so these principles kind of, made me kind of understand, okay, well, like, it's not, it's not about whether you're born in one country or the other that has opportunities or, you know, whatever, or your, how many degrees you have. That's not the advantage. The advantage of it is if you develop the capacity to love, then that principle of light and truth will go with you and you, you it will be mm. easier to love. 
And so these are the principles, I think, that unite all of us in this global faith. People were kind to me in mm. the Dominican Republic. They were kind in Jerusalem. They were kind in Oxford. They were kind in Provo. The love that they shared, the way in which they lived the principles of the gospel of Christ, there were, certainly there were people that weren't perfect. I among them. Yeah. Um, but those principles of Christianity, of Christ-like attributes, made the difference in my life time and again with no respecter of where the people were from. And so for me, the unity that we have as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now is this unity of we're trying to be like the Savior. And I can think of times in Jerusalem when someone was patient or kind or loving, and I can think of times with equal efficacy in all places. Mm. So I feel like, I guess, what unites us the Savior, but what's beautiful is that there's diversity within that unity. Right. There's so many ways to say I love you. There's so many ways to be patient and kind. Yeah. It's awesome to see the church work. Like I said, I've, I mean, I've been to church in many parts of the world. It's awesome to see that the church is narrow enough to bring us to perfection, but broad enough to be globally applicable. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, it would be hard to design something like that. Right. That, you know, that works in, in Hong Kong the same way it works in Sydney, Australia, the same way it works, you know, wherever. Um, what is the status of the church in Israel right now? Well, that's a complicated question. The Yeah, in, in two minutes, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> so the status of the church in Israel is that it is a... It is a recognized faith. Uh, Israel has a law that any church that wants to establish, that was established in the land after the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948, is not recognized and cannot purchase property to have uh, meetings in it. I did not know that. Um, And it's actually quite a crazy story uh, how the church got permission to build the Jerusalem Center that way. There were two missionaries that were serving in the Haifa area, which is in the north of Israel, as part of the German-speaking European mission, because there was a group of German-speaking Christian uh, people that were living there at the time. They both got sick and died, and their families felt to not take them home, but to have them buried there. So there's a cemetery in Haifa, north of Israel, that's from the mid to late 19th century that says, missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints buried here, this is the date. And so when they were building the Jerusalem Center in the 80s, the government said, well, you can't build this because you weren't here before. And somehow through research, it came to light that there, there was, there's actual evidence that there was such presence. So they're recognized, which is pretty cool. How is this story not told? <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing this, it's, Isaac. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of that huge, you know, little, little miracles that are just ginormous in their scope. But My anyway. gosh, I've never heard that. That is incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You could even go to the, the Templar uh, Museum, the Templar Cemetery in Haifa. They're, they're just right there, front row. Incredible. Um, but the church's uh, capacity to build the Jerusalem Center was contingent on an agreement of non-proselytization. Yeah, I had heard that before. So um, all the Jerusalem Center students and the members of the branches there, there's a branch in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, 
in Bethlehem and in Beersheba, there's five branches, uh, they agree not to proselytize mm. to anyone. Um, How far does that go? Can they hold community activities and invite neighbors and community or just no, you go to church, you go home? You go to church, you go home. I mean, it, when it, when you're a resident there, when you're just a tourist visiting, there's no way to monitor that. Right, I, I don't know how they would do that. But when you're a resident there, it's one of, it, I'll tell you this, in the handouts they give in sacrament meeting, they have three ward goals. Last time I was there. And one of the goals is strictly adhere to the non-proselytization agreement. That's one of the That's ward one goals. one of the ward goals. Or branch that is goals. so fascinating. It's very, very strict. I mean, you know, opposite of our ward goals. Exactly. The exact <laughs> opposite of the ward goals. Um, yeah. But there's a, very, there's a famous story of James E. Faust was one of the people involved in the, found, in the founding of the Jerusalem Center in the 80s. And there was a meeting with him and some of the Orthodox rabbis, who were the, probably the most concerned population in the Jerusalem area about the church proselytizing right. in the area. And... The, the the head rabbi leading the discussions approached uh, President Faust and said, we want you to promise never to preach the gospel here. And James E. Faust, in this very heated, kind of like tense situation, they're just, yeah. you know, are we going to get this bill or not? He said, no, not never. We will promise to not do it until you allow us to. Wow. Right? And they agreed. It's like, well, obviously to them, that's the same thing. But to President Faust, a prophet, it's like, no, there will come a day, you know? That is incredible. But there are branches. Have you, so you've attended the branch in Jerusalem? Jerusalem, I have. Bethlehem, I have. Yeah. Um, Bethlehem's teeny. We're talking like eight people. Where do they meet in Bethlehem? Uh, The church rents a little, uh, it's like the lowest apartment on a little you know, maybe four-story apartment building in Bethlehem, uh, just on the other side of the separation barrier. There's a wall between Bethlehem and Jerusalem for security reasons. Yeah. Um, but most of the people that uh, are members of that branch are Arab Christians who left the country for work or for one reason or another, got to know the church, were baptized outside, and came back and yeah. are now attending church there. I can't imagine, <laughs> my mind goes right to Christmas service, <laughs> you mm. know, in Bethlehem. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, sheesh, being in, being in a branch in Bethlehem for Christmas? What a special place. Yeah. Uh, people are interested, like my, my wife and I continually talk about when are we going to, we want to go when we have enough time to go and spend a few weeks and really embrace it. Um, for people who are thinking about going, uh, talk a little bit about the current status of safety in in Israel, you know that's probably the number one question I get: is is it safe to go? Um, and my answer is absolutely. I feel one hundred and ten percent safe there. I, and maybe it's because I know the city so well in terms of where to where to go. Um, but I'll give you an example. A lot of people were concerned about safety on the day when the United States consulate in Jerusalem was changed to the embassy. It was a very politically charged decision recently. Um, I was there on that day Mm. and it was no, nothing was going on. It was just like any other day. There was a little tiny, you know, like a picket kind of thing going outside of the consulate, now embassy, but it's not anywhere in the center of the city. And so 
I've I've never had an experience where I felt unsafe in the mm. city. It's awesome. Yeah. Spiritually, do you have a favorite place in Israel? Yes, I do. Uh, two places probably are tied. Uh, when you go, there's pretty much two centers. There's the Jerusalem area, which is kind of in the middle of the country. Like an hour and a half, hour and 40 minute drive north is the Galilee area. Mm. Um, my favorite place in Jerusalem is Gethsemane, but not there's a, uh, there's a church at Gethsemane called the Church of All Nations, which just thousands of tourists go through there every day. It's mm. very crowded. They're not really sure that's where anything happened, just kind of a general area. Um, but there's a, a national park kind of trail that goes through the Kidron Valley that nobody goes to. And it's kind of difficult to find, but if you can find it with somebody there to help you, um, there's no one ever there. And it's one of these weirdly untouched parts of the city. There's no buildings. It's just an olive grove for several hundred yards. You could just be probably the, one of my favorite places to go in the Jerusalem area. In the Galilee, there's a little stretch of beach called St. Peter's Primacy. It's the place that tradition says that's where the apostles were fishing after the resurrection, and Jesus appears to them again and cooks them dinner and asks, asks Peter, lovest thou me more than these three times? Yeah. Um, it's just a really nice spot. Yeah. That's something about that Does space. Does it change? Again, I haven't been. I know I've been to a good amount of U.S. church history sites. And, you know, having having been to the Sacred Grove area many times, I know it changes the way that I read church history here. Does having spent so much time in Israel and the studies you've done, does that influence the way you study the Bible? Yeah, I think so. I think I would think so. Like, you, I'm, I'm picturing you being able to picture things in a, a different way than I am. Yeah, you know, it's it's nice to be able to to have walked and to see and to visualize where they are, what they're doing, and a lot of the choices in the scriptures uh, that the Savior makes in his mortal ministry, it's like sometimes there's nothing that happens. All of a sudden, the next verse says, and they were in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and it's like, whoa, 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 you were just down here in the Galilee, how... What, yeah. Where is that? It's like, well, now you know. Well, that's like an hour drive or maybe like a day walk north. It's like the idea that he was trying to get away from everyone to be able to talk to his disciples mm. and ask them about, well, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's like, geographically, this makes sense that he was trying to get away from people, a little more of a remote yeah. segment of the area. Um, probably the ge- geography is a big deal, and the language, I think, helps a little. Yeah. Majority of the time, understanding Greek or Hebrew doesn't make an enormous difference mm. to your understanding of a verse of scripture, but occasionally it's it makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I know even in Spanish, or I have friends who speak other languages, there's something that has a slightly different, uh, it means this, and that's deeper. I mean, even what you were talking about, lovest me thou, I mean, that's a pretty big, heavy, you know, question when you get down to all the different translations of it. Totally. That is that is just awesome. So you lead groups now? Are you are you currently doing that? Are you leading groups and if so, how can people find you if they wanted to go on and tour Israel? What do you recommend? Well, um because I teach at BYU, you know, I can't go most of the year. There's two months in kind of the spring uh that I I can go in May and June. 
Um, and it's, it's very, I, I specialize in smaller groups. Um, I like to just rent a car or a van. So, you know, eight people or fewer to go yeah. as a family or a group of friends. Um, I've stayed in, I think, almost every Airbnb available in the <laughs> Jerusalem area and in Galilee. So I've picked my favorite ones that have the best views of the city yeah. or of the lake. Um, and we just go in small groups. And I think for me, I, there are a lot of really great people who do big bus tours, um, members of the church yeah. uh, and not members of the church. But I, I find that when people go on these larger tours, my experience has been, cause I've guided large bus tours. Yeah. Um, it, they, it's more like an ice skating experience than a scuba diving experience. Mm. If that makes sense. That's a great way to put it. Uh, yeah. you know, you can't meet with a rabbi for lunch, but when you're in a small group of five, yeah, I'm going to call my buddy rabbi Kenigsberg and we're going to go to lunch together and you can ask him anything. You know, uh, things wow. like that can't really happen with 170 people. So if there was a group of friends or, or a family that wanted to go with you during those times, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Just email me. Yeah, what's uh, your email address? My email is just my name, Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, Calvert, C-A-L-V-E-R-T, at gmail.com. It's pretty casual, yeah. you know, just kind of, I, I've never really advertised ever, um, and literally never advertised, and I've probably taken... 30 tours Amazing. through this place. Um, it's awesome. So, yeah. Um, it's great. Well, and you've got something else for people who are interested in uh, Israel that I'm really excited about, uh, something near and dear to my heart, which is you are about to launch a new podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, for me, again, teaching BYU, you know, 10 months out of the year, I'm, I can't go anywhere. So, I've more and more been approached by people who want to go, but don't want to go on these big tours. And so I just do a little consultation. I go over to their house, we talk and we make a plan and I give them all the right phone numbers, the right names to call, the right places to stay. We arrange the whole thing and they go and you know, people who aren't, who can kind of get over the, Oh, I'm terrified to go have a great time. And so for me, this podcast is just kind of an effort to help people, get to know Jerusalem better to um, I'm hoping to interview people kind of it's like we're doing right now. Um, just experts on different questions about Jerusalem and the Holy land, it's history, it's people, contemporary politics, you know, everything from that to mm. antiquity. Um, there's a, there's a wealth of information out there. And I think people, when they go are thirsty to know about it, Yeah, but it's just so scattered right now. I think bringing it into one spot and easily accessible chunks yeah. is Something that would be worthwhile, I think. Israel feels, I, you know, I, I mean, I've spent my life traveling. I feel very comfortable going almost anywhere, but for whatever reason, Israel feels overwhelming. Mm. Feels like a tour guide place, uh, and so I think a podcast like that, I would personally love it. I will be a weekly listener because I'm fascinated with Israel, with its history and politics and everything else. So I think it'll be fantastic. And when that gets launched, which I understand is soon, yep. We'll be uh, sharing it on our social media, so please check that out. And this has been fascinating. We're about at time. Was there anything else you wanted to cover? I want to make sure we've got everything from you. No, yeah, I think, you know, just uh, Jerusalem's great. And if you're ever thinking about going, you have any concerns, 
like even if I'm not going to take you or do a formal consultation, like just contact me. Like I just feel really passionate about helping people experience this place that really you've already, if you've read the scriptures, you've experienced it already. So it's almost like a place you've seen with the eye of faith, but want to see physically. That is awesome. Isaac, this has just been fascinating. Thank you so much. We're going to close with the question we ask all of our guests, which is what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, I don't a, think I prepped you for this question. No. Um, <laughs> it's a heavy question, but this is the question we ask all of our guests. It means everything to me. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote that says, I believe in Christ, not, I'll, I believe in Christ like I believe in the light of the sun, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I, I feel similarly the the fullness of the everlasting gospel is on the earth and all truth is available and that I can pray and talk to my heavenly father and to know who I am and that I have a divine nature and destiny. Like it gives everything else meaning. I don't think I would have pursued anything I've pursued in my life, let alone had the strength to get out of bed some mornings sure. without the knowledge of who I am and what I'm here for and the gospel and the restored church have given that to me as a gift. I, I'm just, you know, it's, it's my favorite blessing. Awesome. Awesome. He teaches at BYU. He is a true scholar educated all over the world. He is an expert on Israel as well as a tour guide of Israel and soon to be a podcast host about all things Israel. Isaac Calvert, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your Latter-day Life with us. Thank you. And my special thanks to Isaac Calvert. What an amazing, amazing guy. I so thoroughly enjoyed sitting and talking to him. And I want to give a special thanks to his mom, Pam, who emailed me uh, suggesting that he'd be a great guest. And boy, was she right. That was just fascinating. I really, really enjoyed it. This week in my Latter-day life, actually seeing Isaac again, and Isaac is this funny blend of his mom and his dad. At times, he looked just like his mom. Other times, he'd smile or do something that he looked just like his dad, and it was so fun, and it got me thinking back on my teenage years. Uh, The Calverts were a very important family for me as I was growing up. Uh, His father, Kevin Calvert, was my young men's president, and we all lived in the same neighborhood. And Kevin was also my dentist. And so uh, we were just very, very good friends with the Calverts. And something I don't talk about often, but in my teenage years, I went through some really rough times and some very rebellious times where I was not active in the church. And uh, I enjoyed sort of the punk rock lifestyle and pursuing some really dumb things and uh, really went through some struggles. And God bless my parents. They were with me every step of the way. They never gave up. My father was my bishop, and I'm sure that was very challenging for them now, having had teenagers and having teenagers myself. 
but I really just was not wanting to be a part of the church. And I remember there was a youth conference we had, and at this youth conference, it was a stake youth conference, and somehow my parents had convinced me to go. And like I said, I really kind of liked this this punk rock thing of I wore a lot of black and dyed my hair all kinds of colors. It was really silly. Uh, but one of the things I also loved is I used to put my hair up in a bandana. I'd kind of tie a bandana around my head. When I look back at it, I looked terrible. But at the time, that's how I was most comfortable. And so I agreed to go to this youth conference. It was up in the woods. They said, where, you know, kind of clothes you don't mind getting dirty. And so I was in jeans and a shirt and and a bandana. And when I showed up, there were a couple of stake leaders that were very concerned about my bandana. And I'm not sure what the concern was. Most of the kids were in baseball caps. But for whatever reason, there were a couple of leaders that said, I don't think he should be able to go while wearing this bandana in his hair. Well, the truth is, I didn't really want to go that much anyway. <laughs> I didn't care if I stayed home or went. It didn't matter to me. I was That was a good enough reason to leave. Like, hey, if they don't want me, then I'll go. And uh, Isaac's father, Kevin, was there at the youth conference as our young men's president. And I remember him saying, come on, let's just leave. Let's take Sean. Let's go. And he seemed really frustrated that they were making an issue out of this. And again, it wasn't anything inappropriate. It wasn't against any rules at all. But I mean, I can be sympathetic to what these leaders must have been thinking. They're trying to provide the best experience. But I think Kevin knew that I really needed some spiritual guidance in my life at that time. And so this became a big deal as we were in the parking lot getting ready to leave for youth conference. And these leaders kept talking, should we let him go? Should we not? What should we do? And Kevin walked away and disappeared for a minute. And he had gone out to his car. And when he walked back, he had a bandana tied on his head. He had gone out to his car. He had a an old blue bandana that he had found that was out in his truck. And he put it on. And he walked back up, and he stood next to me. And he just stood there. And the message was so powerful and so strong that basically if they were going to send me, they were going to have to send him. And the other leaders looked at him and saw him and went, yeah, I guess what's the harm? And I remember that week, Kevin and I sharing different ways you could tie a bandana on your head. Um, that moment, I actually speak about that a lot in youth conferences because I really understood how important I was to someone and that Kevin knew I could get some spiritual guidance that week, which I did. This led me on a path to ultimately finding repentance, finding the atonement, finding my Savior, and going on a mission, which has put me on this path that I'm on. And along with my parents and my bishops uh, and so many other great youth leaders, Kevin and Pam were just wonderful supports during that difficult time that is the teenage years. And I'll never forget that. And I'm so grateful. And I just hope that I can be that for some youth. And I've been grateful for some of the youth I've had a chance to mentor. And uh, I had great examples in that mentoring. And Kevin was certainly one of them that day when he showed off that the worth of my soul was far greater than what was on my head. And that's what's happening this week in my latter day life.
Thank you so much for tuning in this week and every week. We sure appreciate it. If you get a chance to leave us a review, we're very grateful for all of our great reviews. Again, it just helps us show up on all the search engines. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached by email at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Please, if you're not already following us, won't you follow us? We try to share things from past guests as well as who is coming up. And then also a quick reminder, our other sister podcast, uh, Sharing Time, is up and running. I think we're six episodes in now, and it is a whole lot of fun. Thank you to those of you uh, who have subscribed to Sharing Time. If you're not subscribed to the Sharing Time podcast, maybe check it out. It is a really fun project. So until we meet again, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>